Hey everyone, you're very welcome back to the OPEX Fitness Podcast, where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm joined on this episode by Coach Mike Boyle. On this show, we dive into Mike's background, evidence-based versus evidence-led practice, work-life balance, coaching burnout, Mike's current book recommendations, and finally, if Mike could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who to invite and why. Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Mike. I know you're going to love it. Stay with us. Coach Mike Boyle, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the OPEX podcast. So thanks so much for coming on and making time. My pleasure. You know that. I love talking to you, Robbie. So I can, I can do this all day. Now we get to record it and other people get to listen. Great stuff, great stuff. So, like, I was thinking about this today. I mean, at, at this stage, there's going to be nobody watching this who doesn't know who you are. I, I would highly doubt it. But what I would like you to do, and I was just thinking about this today, was give us, like, the in-depth background. So, like, I know your background very well. But, like, talking about, like, all the way from the Springfield days where you became a athletic trainer. And then there was this, like, after six months of athletic training, you're kind of like, uh, don't want to do this and then you're just like I'm going to be the volunteer coach I had for you uh, and it was just like you went from a salary of a leg trainer to like I'm going to be a volunteer strength coach at 10 bar at night and then just bring us through the journey of where you've come to now you know, from the Bruins to MBSC right up to where everything is right now well that, you did a pretty good job actually so uh, I don't have to no but it's you're you're pretty much <clears throat> right on and I started I went to Springfield College and I don't think I knew what I wanted to be I just knew that I wanted to do something in a field like this that didn't exist. So imagine going to school and, and realizing that your profession doesn't even exist because there is no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach. And I had started, I mean, I had the, you know, the weedier 110 pound set in my basement and was lifting weights and reading books on how to get better. And, and so in some ways it's almost bizarre that it kind of fell into place the way that it did. I went to Springfield and I always, you know, I, you have heard this story, but I've, I had like this um, kind of outlier, outliers trifecta where my dorm director was Mike Wojcik, who is the longest tenured guy in the National Football League. He's still with the Dallas Cowboys, actually, and he's, he's in his 60s. He's probably, I'm going to say if I'm 58, he's probably 64. And he was a thrower at Boston College, and he was throwing – uh, you know, he's had all the throwing records and was coaching throwers at Springfield. So he was like the, literally the first guy that I met when I walked in. There's this big guy this looks like a weightlifter at the door of our dorm, you know, saying hi to everybody as they come in, as they drag their stuff in. And then Rusty Jones, who actually just went back to uh, Indianapolis after retiring, quote unquote, again, in his 60s. Rusty was there as a graduate assistant football coach. He was the second longest tenured guy in the NFL for a long time. And then um, we had a guy come to teach weight training who was an original student of Bill Starr. This guy, Bruce Buckby, shows up with Bill Starr's Strongest Shall Survive, and he changes the weight training text from, like, the Nautilus manual where they show you how to adjust the machines to uh, the big three, you know, squat, bench, press, power, clean. And uh, it just fell together. So – I did that. I went, like I said, I, I decided on athletic training because strength and conditioning didn't exist. So I did the whole athletic training thing, which was actually a very good education 
to be a strength and conditioning coach because you learned your sciences, you learned your anatomy, you got all that stuff, you learned about joints and I think a, a lot of stuff that was really essential that's probably made me a much better coach in the long run. And then I went to be, you got a job as an athletic trainer, but by that time, Mike Wojcik had gotten a job. He was at Syracuse as the track and field, uh, field event coach and the football strength coach. He was one of the, he was probably the first football strength coach that had been hired in the Northeast. And then Rusty Jones did the same thing. He had gotten hired in the USFL, which most people, if you're not probably over 50, you won't remember the USFL, but the USFL was one of these leagues that was going to try to compete with the NFL. Probably the only one that actually did a decent job, but Rusty got hired there by the, uh, the DiBartolos who owned uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins at the time. And I believe owned the 49ers too at that time. And we also had a USFL franchise, but Rusty got hired to work with the Penguins and this USFL team. So all of a sudden I started thinking, wow, there are guys that I know that have real jobs in strength and conditioning. So I started to sort of formulate this plan in my mind that I was going to become a strength coach. And I lasted six months at BU as an athletic trainer. Hated it. Oh, did I ever hate it. Why, why did you hate it? I, see, never told me I hated hurt people. I hated people who didn't really want to get better. So it was, uh, I, you know, I, I just went and I literally moved across the hall. The weight room was across the hall. We had a little room that had probably six pieces of Nautilus in it because at that time everybody – Every football coach was buying Nautilus equipment because that, you know, one set to failure was the way to go. And That's a big thing, man. Yeah, I went across the hall and I kind of set up shop. And Rick Patino was the basketball coach at that point in time, which is crazy if you can imagine at Boston University. And the football coach was not excited about me being the strength coach, but my sales pitch was, I'll do it for free and I'll be here every day, which was pretty convincing at the time. And, uh, particularly based on the fact that they had no one doing it. So eventually they let me do it. And that led me to, you know, the hockey program at one point came in and said, Hey, we really want to, we want to do this with our guys. So realizing that hockey was much bigger deal at, you know, BU hockey was a team that had a chance to win a national championship legitimately. I suddenly kind of decided to put a little bit more energy into that. And that led me into the Bruins and, you know, it's one, I could go on forever. I could bore you for the whole hour with this thing, but. It was, uh, it's been a long time. What led you then to wanting to open up your own facility? Because, I mean, you were with the, you were with the Bruins from 1990 to 1999, is that correct? Yeah, 91 to 99, I think. And, and in, within that, NBSC officially opened in 97, is that correct? Yeah. So really what happened, a, a couple of things. Again, I think it's always this, like, I, that's why I'm such a big fan of outliers it's kind of this confluence of things that leads you someplace, not any one thing. Yeah. And one, people started doing it. Suddenly you started looking and thinking, wow, people are opening training facilities. And not many were opening, but there were people kind of doing this, for lack of a better term, for-profit strength and conditioning. Mm. And when I was at BU, so I'm at BU, I'm working for the Bruins, I'm working at BU, and I also started working with some professional hockey plays in the early 90s. And, um, you know, one of them, it's, it's really funny. Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins coach Mike Sullivan was one of my early BU guys, you know, who stayed around and trained with our pro guys. We had a lot of, we had a lot of really good guys that were making it in professional hockey at that time, and that was leading high school kids to me, parents calling me and saying, will you train my kid? So I ended up 
I think the second year I took eight high school kids. And what I started to realize is, wow, I can make more money between my pro group and my high school group. I made half of what I made during the whole year from a salary standpoint. I started thinking, wait a second, this isn't such a bad idea. So the next summer I expanded my high school group and by probably by that 96 point, I think I had 120 kids training in the summer who were not BU athletes. And where were you training them? Out of BU? Out of BU, yeah. BU was letting me do it. Because, again, BU, when you think about it, you have to realize the timing of this thing. We had no budget for strength and conditioning. And I was basically – what I did is I went to them. And I, I like to think I was always kind of a little bit of a forward thinker. So I went to the BU people and said, hey, I want to run this camp. And they used to have some – they'd charge coaches. Like, coaches could run their own camps and use the facilities in the summer. It was kind of a fringe benefit of having a job where they didn't pay very much. And, but what they did is they said, you know, we're going to charge you what they used to call a user's fee. So we're going to charge you per kid to use the facility. And I negotiated. I said, that's fine. I have no problem paying the user fee. But what I'd like to do is put it into a fund to outfit the weight room. Hmm. So now here I was kind of the patron of the weight room. I'm running this summer program, but that's buying all the equipment for the weight room. It's buying the racks and it's buying the benches and the bars. So suddenly there's a budget for a strength and conditioning, which is pretty much 100% based on the money that I'm generating in the summer from my summer camps. And so everybody's benefiting. The, you know, the, the school now has a strength coach. And even with someone like me, they've got a strength coach. And you know, I'm bringing in interns and I'm bringing in money and I'm buying equipment. And the teams are winning. Everybody's being successful. At one point, we, I think, came in in the top 10 for the Sears Trophy, which is actually like the, uh, the division, basically a measure of how successful you are at the Division One level in sports. But I think in 95, we won the national championship in hockey and we got into like the NCAA tournament in basketball and we got into the NCAA tournament in field hockey. So kind of everybody was happy. Yeah. But I knew I couldn't grow beyond that number in the summer. And I, people were constantly saying, well, you know, I need my, I want my kid to train in the fall. I want my kid to train in the winter. And I'm like, Hey, I got a full-time job going here. I can't summer. I can, I can find time to do this. So it was just that time of, of looking and saying, is this the right moment to go out and open a facility? And so I started looking into that a little bit more deeply. And, um, and again, I don't remember, you know, a lot of these stories, but, we actually started, my partner Bobby was part of a failed for Pierre franchise, one of those uh, high-speed treadmill deals. Yeah, you would, I actually didn't know you were for Pierre. I wasn't really, but I was in the sense that, you know, I went and took over this facility that, you know, we had two of the high-speed treadmills. We had a skating treadmill. Mm. And I realized relatively quickly that this stuff, it, the technology was okay, but it wasn't, you were never going to make any money with these, you know, I used to say with funnels, you know, you'd, you'd have these funnel bottoms where, you know, you got two treadmills and you're trying to get all your athletes to run some sort of treadmill running protocol. It just wasn't very cost effective. And the treadmills were $27,000 or something a piece. And somebody had to stand there and turn the dial and change the incline and it made no sense to me. So we get rid of all that stuff, but kept the idea of having a, a training facility and that was 97, and now here we are really 21 years later and in a very different kind of world where 
I mean, now there's probably, I won't say 10 places like ours around here, but there's 10 people doing similar stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And since I interned at Boyles in um, 2009, I mean, the, the growth of the company even since then has been just enormous. Um, like I interned at the old Winchester facility and obviously now what, I mean, Winchester was, like I'm brutal with square feet, but it was like 10,000 square feet, but only about 6,000 of actual training floor. Yeah, space. probably about that, something close And to now that. like you've got like over 20,000 square foot of facility, you know, boat buildings. And what, what, what do you think is, has led to that? In, in like, it, it's kind of like, you know, from 97 to 2009, you were kind of like this. And then I just went, boom, after like yeah. 2010. You know, I, I think some of it, in all honesty, and I'm, I'm going to tell you a big part of it, what and this will make you laugh crossfit <laughs> i said crossfit and i've said this a bunch of times it was the ultimate customer creation tool yeah because they were out there you know much like if you look at sort of the trends you know nautilus curves you know whatever it was suddenly what we were doing became really trendy now we were doing this long before crossfit we were doing olympic lifts and jumping on boxes and running sprints and but somehow this became so mainstream mm. that everybody wanted to do it. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, everybody's looking at us. And we were the industry leader in a very small segment of the industry. But suddenly, everybody started looking at us and being like, oh, you need a facility like Boils. You know, you need turf and you need sleds and you need platforms. And it's kind of like, guys, we've been doing this for, you know, 20 years already. Yeah, like every facility you go into now is just turf. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like racks this side turf, and it's just like yeah, they all look like us. It, it's it's like I remember asking you the question one time about um, where did the whole like foam roll stretch mobility warm up power strength condition because it's like it's just like that temp, it's like some of the templates always been around. It's like where did it? And like I think you were like saying like Mike Clark might have been one of the first to kind of design sessions like this or like for Stegen or whatever or yourself. It's like. It's like, where, where did that whole, like, program session design kind of come? Maybe it was a little bit of Charlie Francis, but now it's the same facilities. It's like, oh, facilities have always been like this. It's like, no. <laughs> right. No, and that's what's funny. I just did a talk this weekend for Pat Beat, and that was one of the things that I talked about. I said, you know, is everything old is new again. And I brought, like, mm -hmm. you don't realize, go back and read the Charlie Francis training system now, and it's so brilliant. There's so, there was brilliance in there that I didn't even understand. He's point. talking about breathing and the diaphragm and intercostals in 1988. Yeah. I, I said, I had the quote up on the thing and I said, I probably skipped that part because I had no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. And that's why you should always reread books because you're a different person every time you go back to a book and that's why you'll, you'll take something new from a book every time. Well, the other thing I, I said, one of the things I said in Saturday's talk, I said, training is a lot like archaeology in terms of you find old stuff and you kind of dust it off and think, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. This, this might be worth something. And, and there's so much of that stuff that's out there. So I think, uh, you know, and I know I said, I know where the foam rolling thing came from. It was, it was Mike Clark, but it was Charlie Francis in the sense that um, I had a slide up the other day with all my BU guys foam rolling. And I was like, you know, how do you massage an army? And, you know, that's what we were trying to figure out how to do when you looked at what Charlie was doing and how important he felt that massage was. Yeah. But here we are in a situation where we've got hundreds of athletes in the summer. And I actually had thought through the process of trying to 
develop a relationship with a massage school and like having literally setting up a massage school in the summer to come in. But then I thought you get into all this stuff with like sexual abuse and people putting their hands on people. And, and you're just like, you know, if yeah. I screw this up somehow with people and with their kids, bringing in all these massage therapists, I'm just opening up a can of worms, but here's the foam roller, which is, I've always said, you know, poor man's massage therapy. And, you know, you can buy them for $14.95 and massage people all day. I mean, it, it makes way too much sense. That's why I kind of laugh whenever people say things like, oh, it doesn't work or there's no research or it's not proven. And I'm kind of like, I mean, you can't have any more anecdotal proof for foam rolling than the fact that no one knew what it was 20 years ago. And now there's like a gazillion of them everywhere you go. I mean, what does that tell you? Well, I think too, as well, a lot of people are, a lot of people say there's no evidence. It's like there's no evidence of why we know it works, but there is evidence that it does work. I mean, there is there is actual studies where they've done range of motion tests, they foam roll an area, and then the range of motion gets better. And like it's just probably just some sort of neurological input, but it definitely opens a window of opportunity, which can without question be beneficial to the session that is going to follow. Well, exactly. And you look at like that whole little piece that I published the other day on the strength coach site about that interstitium. You know, they're talking about this. Yeah, yeah, I read that article. I read that article. The, the, the organ you never knew about. Right. <laughs> that's covering your whole body. Yeah. It's live like fashion. You think maybe that's why massage works, you know? And then, I mean, I think, and this and is that's, why, that's why it could explain like um, acupuncture too. Yeah, exactly. Acupuncture and acupressure and the whole Chinese medicine idea of yin and yang and all these, you know, uh, Rob Dos Remedios was one of the other speakers too. And, you know, he was saying kind of the same thing. Like, you know, you, you don't need to be evidence-based in the sense that uh, Brandon Marcel likes to talk about, let's be evidence-led. Mm. And, I, I, you know, you, you can't be evidence-based because if you're evidence-based, you're always behind. Yeah. If you're evidence-led, you're going to look and think, hmm, what might be the best way to do this? Or would this be better than this? And then we go out and we do the initial research study for somebody, but we don't get any credit. And then somebody else comes along who's got like all the academic degrees and all the bullshit that they need to be able to do it. And then they do a real study and they say, yeah, this works. Yeah. But th there's a, there's a doctor called Dr. Tom O'Brien who'd be very well known in like the health and wellness um, profession. He's a chiropractor, but he really, he's really well known for like his work in gluten sensitivity and, and gluten intolerance and, and stuff like that. But he, he uh, had a presentation where I think he said like for something to come from research and then be actually brought into clinical use, it was like 17 years for, between the time it was from research and then brought into like actual proven, oh yeah, we, we use this now in clinical practice in medicine. Um, and then just talking about being evidence-led, Steve Magnus, he's one of our guest um, speakers in St. Mary's where I'm doing my master's now. And he had a great uh, lecture and the, the sort of the sort of premise of the lecture was there's evidence-based practice, but then he's like, there's also practice-based evidence as well. Like, you know, that from what we do in practice, we know it works, but we might not have research say that this works yet, but nearly all the research that, that is out there came from theories or thought processes that from the field we were like, I wonder, I want to do research to see why this works from an observation standpoint. We know this works, what is actually going on? So it like the research is led by what we do usually out in the field most of the time exactly have you read david and goliath i actually haven't read that yet oh read david and goliath it's interesting there's a great section it's a typical kind of gladwell book that moves from scenario to scenario but 
he talks about the, the invention of chemotherapy. Like a guy invented chemotherapy and he invented chemotherapy because he was a doctor in the childhood leukemia world and he was like, everyone dies. Yeah. Every single kid who gets childhood leukemia dies. Zero percent cure rate. And he was like, why not give them drugs? Why not give them cocktails of drugs? Why not mix drugs together? Because the reality is they're all going to die. And he, got, he fought like hell with the medical establishment who said stuff to him like, just make them comfortable. You know, make them comfortable so they can die in peace. Yeah. He said, no, this is stupid that, that we're just, that we're acknowledging that, oh yeah, this is a fatal disease and everybody gets who dies. Yeah. And he realized that that led a guy to literally invent the idea of chemotherapy. And then he invented the idea of rounds of chemotherapy because he said, we got kids better and then they died. Yeah. When we realized we needed to do it more than once and we had to, he had a hard time. He said, now we had a hard time convincing the parents that, well, we know your child looks better. We also know they're not cured and we need to make them sick again to make them well. Like think about the premise of, you know, somebody trying to fight cancer mm -hmm. and realize you know, and then you've got, like I said, that's why I go crazy with, you know, the evidence-based people in terms of, hey, wait a second, this doesn't make, you need to have people doing experiments. You need to have people pushing the envelope and saying, what if we did this? Because otherwise, where would we be? It's a, it's a balance. It's a spectrum. It's not an either or. I mean, we obviously do need evidence, but we also then, we, we don't want to be so afraid to do something if there is no initial evidence to back it up. I mean, it's, it's uh, you see it now on social media that just there is there has been this big sort of growth in if it isn't if there's no evidence behind it you're a quack and you know all you know if you say anything that like with quantum in it you know you're automatically just like shoved to the side or just like don't even talk to me about like quantum physics or biology or all this made up stuff and and generally too the, the very people who are who are putting out like these criticisms they never show what they're doing or they never give a solution there's like well what do you suggest and usually because they're just criticizing. That's why, you know, it, it always in the poem goes around. I love the man in the arena poem because Teddy Roosevelt, Stu, Stu yeah. McMillan just posted that lately. And the amount of people who were like, liked it and said, that's exactly like the sort of medicine that needs to be put forward to like distinguish this sort of like, or to sorry, extinguish this sort of really bad sort of evidence-based kind of nature that's been put out there. Right. No. And that's exactly the thing. You start looking at people and saying that, it's easy, you know, it starts out, it's not the critic that counts. And it, and it's true. It's not the critic that counts. It's not. But as we all know, and I've been through a little of that the last couple of months, there's a tremendous amount of frauds who are both critics and experts. Mm -hmm. So you've got them on both sides. You've got mm -hmm. guys that are total phonies who are on the critic side, and you've got guys that are total phonies that are on the expert side. And I think people don't do a good enough job looking at backgrounds and saying, wait a second. Like I read something the other day about a guy and it, and it said, you know, how, about his extensive coaching resume. And it's like, he doesn't have an extensive coaching resume. Someone should actually look at his extensive coaching resume and realize that it consists of nothing. Yeah. But I, nobody does. I, I, I actually, I, I'm like, and you know too, but like I know there's people who like aren't coaching at all at the moment anymore. And like, they write as if they still are coaching. Like they're oh, yeah. still in the midst a of lot. A There's a lot of those. I mean, there's, there's an incredible number of those people who, and never mind, aren't, never have really 
Mm. At any, and, and not that it needs to be, I shouldn't say at any meaningful level, because again, one of the, when I did this talk Saturday, I was talking about how much I've learned lately from like some high school coaches yeah. or from a young guy like, you know, Cam Joss, who's 28 years old, who yeah. there's yeah. a lot of people that, that may not have extensive resumes. I mean, Cam Joss was playing football at URI in the 2000s. Mm. You know, 2010 or something, he was on a college football team. That's why, like, when people say, oh, he's, he's the best coach in the world, I'm like, you can't say that because, the, like, one, it's all relative, and two, the, probably the best coach that, that in the world is probably some guy we've never heard of who's got to deal with, like, 500 kids in some, like, high school, like, in the middle of nowhere, and he's just a genius coach with, like, such, like, little facilities at hand and you know you just never hear from him because he just all he does is coach and he loves it like and he's That's, but it's it's so much you know everything and it, you, know, you got like i said I, i'm a big like i look at people and said i can be critical of social media but people will be like but you know you're a huge user of social media and i'm like yeah i i am a huge user of social media but i'm still because you can create your own legend hmm and then if you get the right people following you, they'll help you create your own legend. Because again, you can, you know, if you go, if you get on the internet frequently enough and say that you're an expert in something, eventually people will start repeating the yeah. fact that you are an expert in something. And again, we've seen that over and over again where people just decide that I'm the blank guy. Yeah. And they just keep saying it. I'm the blank guy. I'm the blank or even, guy. Uh, if, uh, I was only listening to something the other day, but they talked about Joseph Goebbels from like the Nazis. And they were saying that he had this, he was the propaganda, the head of the propaganda for Nazis. And he had this saying that if you repeat, repeat a lie enough times, it becomes accepted as a truth. I'm paraphrasing that, but that's essentially it. Like, you know, it just keeps being repeated and repeated. People accept it as true. And we've seen that in other domains too, like the whole cholesterol thing and the heart. And now, like, eventually it's come out that, oh, we were a bit overboard with cholesterol and saturated fat, saying that this, this is definitely the cause of heart disease. There's way more factors that go into it now. And it's, it's like um, Alan's pendulum, overreaction, underreaction. It's, 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 everything seems to, like Dan Pfaff, one thing I really took away from my time at Altus was that he's like, everything basically is on a spectrum. You know, he's like, if, and if you ever meet someone who's like at the extremes of either end of a spectrum, always be like, just very wary. Cause he's like, nearly everything is in that gray zone. Yeah. And he's right. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I always say to people, um, you know, even the high carbohydrate, low fat diet yeah. Yeah. was, but when you, I always said, it's a really good example of mismanaging the message because the initial message was to eat more carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables mm. and eat less animal fat. And that was kind of, that wasn't really horrible advice. Yeah, it wasn't when radical. It just, when it just became high carb, low fat, it became horrible advice. Yeah. Because suddenly it was just like, eat as much sugar as you want and as little fat as possible. And grains and, and grains. and. Yeah, you know, it's like the, the, the telephone game. You know, you feel like the, the guy, the initial guy was like, no, no, that's not what I said. That isn't what I meant. And, you know, and now all of a sudden he's stuck. Like he's the guy that invented the high carb, low fat diet. And he's like, that's not what I said. You shortened my sentence down. You took 25 words out and made me into a quack. But there's a saying by Ralph Waldo Emerson, to be great is to be misunderstood. So you, you get, like it's in our profession, it's prevalent. I mean, you, 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 you're completely misunderstood. Gray's been completely misunderstood at times. Like Charlie France, some of Charlie France works being misunderstood. Like it, it's just, uh, it, it seems to be human nature to just make criticisms based off false assumptions. That's why one of the books you recommended to me when I was young, and it's one of my favorite books, is The Four Agreements. And one of the agreements is to never make assumptions. You know, to always, 
it's kind of like Stephen Covey too, another book that you yeah. recommended to me. So Stephen Covey has one of his um, seven habits is uh, seek, to, seek first to understand, then to be understood. So always trying to really understand where the other individual is coming from before you, you make a judgment or, or make an assumption. Um, and it just seems to happen all the time. Like I, I love the story of you where you, you meet people and they're like, uh, oh my God, you, you lift weights. And you're like, yeah, real weights. We, we lift weights. You're like, people think that we're like Richard Simmons with headbands on and just stability balls. And he's all like, we actually lift pretty heavy weights here. We just do it with certain exercises. So I always love that too. Yeah, no, and that's, but that's, it, it's a huge, I, you're right. It's a huge part of every field. I, I always tell people like, if everybody likes your presentation or everybody hates your presentation, it wasn't a good presentation. Mm-hmm. But 20 people should dislike it, or 20% of the people probably at least, or 10 to 20, I'll say I won't go over 20. But if you there see, are- You secretly get a little bit of joy out of pissing people off. I can see. <laughs> because, because if you don't kind of, you know- Stir the bow. Yeah, stir the pot and you know, get somebody out of their comfort zone, you're probably not doing a good job. If you can deliver like this vanilla presentation where everybody kind of sits there and is like, well, yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I heard all that before. Yeah. And I've never done that, which is good, but it's amazing. He's like said, people. But you don't, you, you don't grow from that, Mike. You don't grow as an individual. And as you, and, and again, another massive lesson I took from you in my younger years when I got into the field first. And it's only it's funny because I only was talking to a woman on Saturday and, and this came up in conversation. But, and I mentioned you and I said, one of my mentors, he, he has this great saying, he says, you can disagree without disliking someone. And the problem is that we put too much of our emotions into our beliefs that if, if someone then attacks them, we think it's an attack on us as an individual. So like we can disagree without dislike. And I think that's a huge thing for people to, to understand too, you know, because even myself and yourself, we've had discussions on the forum, about energy systems and we mightn't fully agree in it, but it's all like, like there's no question that we both still, you know, that we're, that there's a dislike between us or it, it jeopardizes any friendship we have or anything like that. So it's, it's a definitely a thing that a lot of people, I think struggle with too. Um, Cause another thing you've spoken about too, is that you've met people from high school and you're like, they're still high school kids. They haven't grown yet. They haven't matured. They haven't had these life experiences yet. They still think that like still holding grudges and you're just like, they need to move on. And you can kind of see that too in our profession. And that's a lot of maybe the attacks on social media and ego driven. And again, people just being afraid that their thoughts are getting attacked and it's attack on them as a person where again, you can disagree with this like. No, you're right. And that's, um, I learned that from the Perform Better seminars because one of the things with being around the other speakers is that I would find there were other speakers who, you know, I might watch the presentation and think, oh, I didn't really like that. I wouldn't really do that. Yeah. But hanging around with them afterwards and talking to them about their family and about their business and about what they liked and what they didn't like, I could come away and think, yeah, hey, I really like this guy. I just... Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of his training style, but that shouldn't be what creates your relationships. Okay. I'm only going to hang around people who, who train, you know, in the Mike Boyle training style. And other than that, everybody else is on the outside looking in. I'm not going to talk to those people. And there's a lot of people that still operate that way. Yeah. It's funny. And I don't mean to name anyone here, but it's just, the, the one instant guy that comes to my head is Martin Rooney. Like, I love Martin, but there's certain things he doesn't like. I still wouldn't do that with a client, though. <laughs> right? No, you're right. I, I'm going to move and find my plug here. I apologize. I'm, no, you're good. You're good. A little bit of low battery. But, no, you're right. I mean, and he's one of those guys. Like, there's some things that I look at and think, I would never do that. 
Because again, you know, and I'm very, I can be extremely kind of rigid and dogmatic when we talk about, you know, sort of flexion and no flexion and, you know, bilateral squatting and certain things. But, you know, again, I'm not going to let that make me dislike somebody and say, hey, I, I don't like that guy. A lot of times I think I really like that guy. Yeah. And the other thing, and I always, and I say this all the time, I think everybody eventually comes around because it's, it's amazing when I always said, like you look at a guy like Cam Joss, who's a DeFranco guy and Joe was one of kind of the original go heavy or go home guys back in the, mm. the good old days. Yeah. And they're very big proponents of unilateral training. Massive. Yeah. And you look and think, wow, these aren't guys I would have expected. You know, I wouldn't expect somebody like Cam you know, as a DeFranco guy, to say, but he told the story, and I think he might have told it on your podcast, but after I kind of, I think I ran into him on your podcast first, and then I listened to three or four, Yeah, because he had done a whole string of them at a certain point in time, <clears throat> and he just said he had one of these football guys walk in and was like, I don't do squats or deadlifts, so I, we, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do here, and he kind of was like, mm, God, what am I going to do now, but, you know, what he did was, he adapted and then he realized in the process of adaptation, he came up with, came away with some things that he really liked. Yeah. But the, the, and the single leg stuff has turned into the one minute mile. I mean, we just like, how far is it going to keep going? Uh, like you've seen some videos that Cam put up on his Twitter feed and it's just like guys doing reverse lunges. Like was, was there a, was there a hand supported split squat with like 180 kilo, four or five, something like that. It was just like, Oh yeah. Devin McConnell sent me one the other day with five Oh five. Like One it's phenomenal, like, you know. Five oh five, like breaking sticks. Yeah. I mean, it was I mean so ridiculously easy, and I love it because I look at people and think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep arguing with me, right? Keep telling me that there's no bilateral deficit. Keep telling me that it's better the other way. But now I have people saying, oh, you're going so heavy on the unilateral stuff. Aren't you worried about people's spines? And I'm like, really? Like now that's going to be the criticism? Yeah, yeah. But that's the way that it works in terms of. The no leg training is the next one now, Mike. Functional training. Yeah. Now we do no leg training. So there's, there's no bilateral or unilateral deficit. Well, Mike, I only have you for another 25 minutes, and there's a few, few particular questions I want to get. One thing I really, really want to get your thoughts on, um, like kind of today and yesterday as I was walking, I was like, what am I really going to speak about Mike to? Because like, like, in, like between me and you in terms of training, I mean, like, there's, like, of course we could talk about training all day, but there's so much that we would just kind of nod and agree on. And then I was kind of, what can I give to the listeners and the viewers here that would be something sort of different? So that's why one thing with the background, just to give them a little more in-depth background. But one thing I wanted to ask you on was coach burnout. Um, I really want your thoughts on balance in life because it seems to be a, a thing that's becoming more prevalent or it's been more spoken about, like coaches just being burnt out. Um, you know, family lives aren't in balance. Like Kieran and Flat made a joke on Mike Robertson's podcast that he's like, I have a lot of friends that are either divorced or getting divorced or have no family life. But there just seems to be this game of one-upsmanship of like guys like staying in the facility longer than another guy, and it's just like you know they're staying in the facility and they don't need to stay there, and it's uh, they don't want to go home to face family issues because the wife has given out that why aren't you home? Like you said, you're home four and you're not home till eight and you know, after 10 years, then you can see that this person just does no passion for coaching anymore. And, you know, and you're someone who has a great from anyway, I don't want to make again assumptions, but you've always seemed to have a very, very strong relationship with your wife. And, and you know, you're, you're someone who's like 
traveling you've coached i mean you tend bar and and was a strength coach like for like 10 12 years so like what are your thoughts on balance what are your thoughts on coach burnout what would your advice be to to keep someone in the long game because you've you've seen coaches come and go and personally myself i'm more studying right now than doing more coaching and like i was coached for a good solid 10 years and I even got a bit burnt out too from it. And it was kind of a bit of a, a refresher now just to maybe step back and get more to academia. But I'm starting to get a bit of a coaching itch again soon. But basically the question is like, what would your thoughts be on like staying in the long game, keeping it fresh? Well, I think one of the big things is realizing that you're going to be out of balance in the beginning and you need to find somebody who understands your passion. So if you don't, if you don't end up with somebody who understands what you're passionate about and understands that, hey, the first 10 years here may not be great from a relationship standpoint. You're probably, seriously, you're probably in trouble. I was just wondering how that conversation went. Just to let you know, the first 10 years of our marriage might yeah. be great, but hang in there. I promise. Exactly. No, but I, and I think, I guess the difference is you have to realize that if you're with somebody who, who isn't like, isn't enjoying, you know, being around the process, who's constantly trying to pull you out of the process, it's probably the wrong person. Like I was very lucky. My wife, you know, went to games with me. I'd be like, okay, Saturday we're going to go watch, you know, the football game and then we're going to go watch the hockey game and then we're going to go on Sunday we're going to come back and watch the wrestling team. And she would come with me to all that stuff when I was at BU. And so we had a really good relationship. Like I knew she, she knew what I was passionate about and she was very willing to kind of be a part of that. If you don't have that, then you may be in trouble from the get-go. And I think you've got to realize when you're looking from a relationship standpoint, that's going to be a big part of it because I, I won't tell you it's going to be easy to keep it. But I think that's any profession. You know, if you were a stockbroker or you were a doctor or you doctor, were a lawyer, yeah. Yeah. everybody's going to be out of balance in the beginning. The problem is when you start to be successful. My big thing was, as you start to be successful, I used to meet people said, oh, I work all these hours for, you know, for my family and for my kids. And I'm like, no, you don't. You work them for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Th that, that's, yeah. that's an issue. That's one of the things I want to get at too. They're, they're like, oh, I do it. Like they play this victim role. And it's like, like Adam Watts, the great philosopher, always called it the game of one-upsmanship. It's like, well, I was at the facility at 4 a.m. You were, oh, you only came at 5 and I stayed till 7 and you went at 6. And it's like, why are you throwing your suffering in my face as if it makes you a better person? Right. And that's, but, and that's very standard. That's very standard in American sport. So football coaching, it's like the football yeah. coaches are there. Oh, oh I, I slept in the office. Well, I slept in the office for a week. Well, I slept in the office for a month. Well, I haven't seen my kids since they were born. You know what I mean? It's like, I literally, and I have the, the quote, I put it in my presentation because I'm talking at the National High School Strength Coaches Association. And this is one of the things I want to talk about is this sort of, for, for Gary, who yeah. with that your connection right there for me. We, we, must, we must actually tell that before we go. That's a great little yeah. story. And, uh, um, but you know, one of the things, Bruce Arians, who just retired as the Arizona Cardinals football coach, oh. this is not a lie. He said to his wife, I knew it was time when she mentioned that our son had turned 40, 40. It's yeah. like, are you kidding me? You knew it was time. Like, you knew it was time when he was 40. You knew it was time when you've missed almost his whole life. Well, and probably his grandchildren. And better late than never, I suppose. I, but, but you know what I mean? When I've read some of these books, I read, you know, Urban Meyer's book, you know, and he was talking about missing his, you know, all of his daughter's games. And, yeah. you know, how she told me, he was saying something about going to her, you know, her signing date. She was signing for volleyball. 
And she said, you don't have to come. You've missed everything anyway. You know, and it's like, what's the point of being a multimillionaire? Like, I'm doing okay, right? But I've made decisions now later on in life that are not financially based. I turned yep. down, yep. I've turned down every speaking engagement from October through April. Mm. Basically saying to people, I'm going to watch my kids' games. I'm going to drive to Clarkson and watch my daughter. And then I'm going to get, I get in the car at six o'clock at night after her game, six hours away. And I drive six hours back home so I can be home Sunday to see my son's game on Sunday. Mm. And, you know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that, you know, it's easy to talk a good game about sort of your sacrifices and how dedicated you are, but it's like dedicated to what? Yeah. You know, if I'm more dedicated to Mike Boyle strength and conditioning than I am to, you know, Cindy Boyle and Mark Boyle and Michaela Boyle, then, you know, they'd have a right to ditch me. You know what I mean? They'd be like, okay, this guy's not a good guy. We need to get rid of him. And I think that's what happens to people is that they just realize you can't ask somebody to be in that kind of situation. I mean, how do you do that? Well, you say, okay, yeah, you're not important. But it's that ability. I think the hardest thing to do is to make the shift, to look and say, okay, kind of like, hey, I'm successful enough. I'm rich enough. I've got enough money. It's not, you know, the next million dollars. Because, and it's interesting, there's a book called What Happy People Know. And it's a really interesting book because one of the things that they talk about is that people that are rich spend X amount of years getting rich, mm. but they don't end up happy. Yeah. Because once they're rich, this is what this is research based. They then spend the next, let's say, decade worrying about losing their money and about not being rich. So it's like I spent all this time getting rich. Now I'm, I'm obsessing about not losing my money. And, it, you know, so, so much of it is kind of the, uh, you know, you were talking about like the Stephen Covey stuff and the four agreements, but it is that the basic stuff about looking at yourself as a person, mm. as a father, mm. as a husband and saying, okay, am I, am I fulfilling those roles even anywhere close to how well I'm fulfilling my role as a strength and conditioning expert. I mean, I've had, I've struggled with it. I think everybody struggles with it, but you've got to be able to look at it and think, okay, I'm going to step back here and, and put, you know, even today, like I make my schedule uh, as much as I can during the year, I get up and I drive Mark to school Yeah. because I think it's important if I can be here in the morning for him driving to school. And then it's like, okay, like you said, what time do I get the phone? Eight o'clock, because I know I can be back here and on the phone with you at eight o'clock. It's so funny. I didn't know that, but I, I was like, 8 a.m. I was like, I bet you he brings Mark to school and he has a few hours in the morning. It's funny. Yeah. I, just, I just knew that. Yeah. And again, summer comes. I won't be able to do that. But summer, he's off from school. And, I, you know, I'll be in the gym early with our pro hockey guys. But I've tried to develop the schedule better. Winter is sometimes there's a stretch during baseball offseason where Cindy has to drive to school. Yeah. Because I've got the baseball guys and they work out early. Because, again, now they've got kids. My baseball guys are older and they don't want to work out at 10 o'clock. They want to work out at 7 o'clock. Mm. So suddenly I'm in there earlier. So it's always that juggling and saying, okay, you know, what am I – even, you know, I go back in the afternoon to the gym a lot. But two of the days I bring Mark and I bring him and his friend here and I train them, Yeah. you know, while I'm there. So I'm, I'm in the gym. I'm seeing clients. I'm observing what's going on. But I'm also getting – a couple of hours with Mark. Hmm. I, I think 
it, it's it's actually an area that I've been meditating on an awful lot lately. And when I say meditate, I just mean thinking about. But it's this just concept of fulfillment and happiness, and people equate certain things to fulfillment and happiness. So, for instance, money. They think, oh, well, if I make more money, that loves me make more fulfilled. And it's just, it's not the case at all. I mean, uh, and you know, the, I think that's the thing where a lot of people from the outside looking in, they they look at certain like. So, just going back to our own professional strength and conditioning, they're looking at like strength and conditioning coaches in these elite organizations, or they're looking at them with these like high performance setups and think oh if i could just get there i'll be happy but then if you talk to a lot of the guys who are in that position they're not happy no. they're not happy at all like and it's just like you know which then makes reflect this is like well like, you know it really is an important question to ask of like what do you want and what what really makes you happy and i think a, a lot of choices that we end up making in our lives are again they're nearly more ego based it's to say like let's just say you, you got an opportunity with an elite organization and it's not just to say oh i i work for them but like when you're actually there and like i'm not going to name any names here but i've done you know me i've done a lot of travel and i visit a lot of places and invariably my most of the time i'm like no one here is really happy yeah no, and that's all- but that's it's a great thing to experience though because i just said what was the name of that book happiness equation yeah, I just finished a book called The Happiness Equation. Yeah. And it's the same thing. And the guy says that success doesn't lead to happiness. Happiness leads to success. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the, the central premise at the beginning of the book. I bought it for the whole staff for our mm-hmm. book club reading because mm-hmm. I wanted everybody to read it and realize that, you know, like some people think, oh, I just, you know, I work. You know, oh, you just work with general population or, you know, you work in a private setting. You know, you're not at a school. And it's like, yeah. But a lot of these people are probably much happier. Yeah. You know, same thing, Marcus Buckingham, first break all the rules. When you start reading about what makes people happy at work, money isn't in the top 10. Not not in top 10. Not in the top 10. No. Amazing. Not in the top 10. And it's stuff like, do I have friends at work? Does, Does my boss care about me? Do I have the equipment I need to do my job? There are all these things. And that's why I realize when people say, why do people stay with you for so long sometimes? much longer than the industry average. And it's because it's an environment where they're basically happy and they like what they're doing. Yeah. And it's funny for that, uh, the thing I'm doing for, uh, for Gary, I took a picture of, um, I opened the drawer, I took a picture of, of the box, you know, and the box sits in the back of the drawer in my dining room and it has a World Series ring, two national championship rings and an Olympic medal. Yeah. And it's in a box. Mm-hmm. And nobody cares about the box. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, like I don't put any of this stuff on. I don't wear it around. So it's sort of like, what's the purpose of the stuff in the box? If it just ends up in a box in a drawer. Hmm. And, but the other things that, you know, the people, the relationships, those are the things that are going to be much, much more important than the rings or the, you know, yeah. The, the junk, my wife just said the trappings, you know, the, the stuff that goes with it is not nearly as important. And for me, like I always tell somebody it's more important to, you know, when I see my kids growing up and, and becoming better people. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something, uh, you, and you can relate to this, and 
you know, like I, like I don't have kids. I'm, I'm a single man right now, just for the ladies out there. But uh, it, it really is. I, I like because I did an interview with Jim Cabasso on my own podcast previously, and, and a lot of our conversation was around this too. And, and a lot of discussions with a lot of people that within the industry are around this. And in fairness to Brett Bartholomew, I think he's bringing a lot of this to, to the forefront too, in, in terms of coaches burning out and just relationships with like you know, the, the people outside of your profession, your life. But one of the, just to go off everything you said, one of the best experiences I had was spending two days in Al Vermeil's home. And you know Al as well as I do, you know, Super Bowl ring with the 49ers in 82, six championships with the Bulls. And Mike, all he spoke about for two days was his son. Yeah. All he spoke about was Lance. And just like, you know, his certain regrets, obviously, with Lance. And, and you know, just that was the only thing he spoke about. And, and and the reason and the reason he lives in Cincinnati now is because he's like I have to be close to my grandkids and like he and he's like the most humble guy ever like he never talks about the championships he won or you know he just that's all he spoke about was family now and, and like for anyone who doesn't know who Al Vermeil is he's like one of the most successful strength and coaches ever like one of the kind of forefathers of S and C and you know it's just it just kind of brings to light everything you said and it was just an illuminating two days you know so. Uh, yeah, that's why I really wanted to get your thoughts on it too. Because well, and I love like one of the things you, you mentioned, Brett. But I, 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 I called Brett and talked to him, and I said, you know, I, I didn't like the, I, I liked parts of the book. I didn't like parts. Parts of the book were written by like five MBSC guys, I think, too, which was interesting. You know, Dave Beloka, Brendan, you know, Kyle, all these guys, you know, wrote little sections of the book with him. Then you had Barry from Exos as well. So it was a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. But to like to bear your soul like he did and to say, Hey, wait a second. You know, I was a really screwed up kid. Like I was hospitalized. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, a really ballsy book to write in terms of, and that's why I love the fact that people are critical of him. I'm like, how can you be critical of a guy who's put himself out there in a way probably that no one in our profession ever has? Well, you're always, you're always going, you're always going to get that. But I mean, you're right though. It was very brave. And uh, like, he had, he had to do that. He had to do that for the book. It made the book. I, well, but I said that to people and people were like, you know, I said, you got to read the book just to realize this guy was a nut job in the beginning. Like he was, <laughs> he was, I mean, you, you read that first part of the book and you're thinking, wow, it's amazing that this guy's kind of got his shit together now and is doing the things that he's doing. Because, you know, again, when you want to have kind of that victim mentality, he would have had every reason to, yeah. to be crying the blues and feel sorry for himself. And, you know, life didn't work out for me the way it should have kind of deal. But, Mike, there's, there's like, stories like Brett are, like, not that rare. There's a lot of people in our profession who are pretty screwed up in terms yeah. of, like, things, you know, body images, training. Like, there's, like, those are coaches who are, like, if they don't get their own training in and it, it actually impacts their own career then and their time schedule and, like, yeah. there's loads of that going on. And, like, orthorexia, like, dysfunctional eating, like, you know, and stuff like that. There's lots of that going on. Right, but my – nobody admits it. Yeah, no, there's that's no what I mean. Nobody admits it. And that's, that's the thing, too, with, with the coaching burnout thing. And that's why yeah. I wanted your thoughts on it. Because just, just, just sorry to jump in, but just, like, another thing, like – I think, Mike, there's, there's, I don't think, because I actually know, because I've spoken to a few of these, and I'm obviously not going to name names, but like, I know coaches in our profession who don't love coaching. They don't love it. They, they do it because they think they need to identify with it and they need to be accepted then. Like, and if they were to come out and say, I don't really want to coach anymore, they would feel like that their mentors would be like, what do you mean you don't want to coach? You don't want to grind. You don't know hard work and all this. I, I actually know like Olympic-level coaches who are like, I kind of want to break from coaching. I'm kind of burnt out. And that's kind of why I wanted your thoughts on this sort of like, 
this whole process. You know, yeah. I think people are, people are afraid to say, I need a break because they're afraid, oh, you're not man enough. You're not sleeping in the office for a month like you were saying earlier on. Well, that's like the end of that 25 mistakes are, you know, article. That's what I talked about was that, you know, not, you know, not appreciating your wife, not taking a nap, not mm-hmm. having kids, like not, you know, I, I did the talk one time and I see everybody's like naps are for pussies. You know, they, you know, you gotta, you know, you can't sleep during the day. You can't sleep at night. Don't sleep at all. You know, it's like <laughs> stay awake the whole time and live on protein shakes. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, like go home, lay down, sleep. It's okay. Yeah. You know, go home, tell your kids that you love them. Go, go to the beach, you know, take, like, you know, enjoy yourself because, you know, and it goes back to this, like the bad part about our profession, I think is that not enough people are avid readers. And so if you read any of the literature that there is around death and dying, you will realize that, you know, the, the old, no one complained about not spending enough time at the office but that's all incredibly true when you talk to any of these people that are involved in hospice type care everybody will tell you that it's kind of the things that they didn't do that they regret the most you know when you think of the game like even now and I've, i've told this story a bunch of times before when i was working for the red sox i wrote in my goals that i was going to play with mark for 15 minutes out of every day because i was so exhausted and he'd be like come on let's play catch I just be like, oh my God, I don't want to go out in the street again and play catch. I can't do it. And I would literally set my phone timer for 15 minutes and just go out in the street. Like I'd be absolutely legless. You know, I've been up for whatever, you know, 15 hours. And it's like, okay, get the baseball glove out. You know, one summer I couldn't throw it in my right hand and I like bought a lefty glove. And I taught myself to throw lefty because the, the only thing you wanted to do at that point was play catch. It was like, okay, I'm going to go out every day, whether I like it or not, I'm going to play catch. And, and there were really days where I dragged myself through it because I felt like, well, this is really important. You can't, you know, but you don't know, you're probably too young to remember uh, Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. Listen to, go, uh, go into your iTunes sometime and type in Cats in the Cradle and listen to, uh, listen to the words and you'll, you'll get no, it. I, I, know, I know the song. It was actually in a, in a Simpsons episode, so that's why I know it. <laughs> But it, it, like, uh, like I don't know if you probably are aware to like um, I know you know Maladin, but Maladin's story too of why he had to leave yeah, his back. dream job at Port Adelaide in Australia because he felt his son was more important. And I remember when, and I had Maladin on my podcast at the end of last year. But at the time Maladin done that, I, I like I couldn't imagine like how hard that decision was. He just landed like his dream job, basically as a sports scientist with a huge AFL club. I messaged him when I, when I heard what he'd done and I was just like, that is so admirable, you know, and it's, it is the right decision and, it, and it's the man decision to make that your son is more important, but it, it still doesn't cover that. It was hard. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever shared this. And um, again, like if we could cut this out, if you don't want to share, but like when, when it came to renewing your time with the Red Sox, I remember you were over in Ireland doing functional strength coach five. And I'd ask you, why didn't you stay at the Red Sox? And you're just like, my family is more important. You're like, you were sitting down and you're like, Michaela's going to go to college soon and Mark's grown up and he's just like, Red Sox is a great job, but he's just like, I made the decision. He's just like, I, I want to be around my family. So like, I mean, I think that's huge for people to hear again. Like people go, Oh my God, like how could you get that up? It's like, cause my family is more important. Yeah, no. And there was no question. I mean, that was exact. And, and I knew that I knew it taking the job. I knew it that, you know, to take a job like that in your fifties was not a good idea. Luckily that's why I said you, you know, uh, another one of my slides, you know, is 
uh, Life Little Instruction book, H. Jackson Brown, it says, marry the right person. Yeah. You know, Cindy was the one I was like, no, you have to do this. Like, you can't. <laughs> but it was like, right. okay, you know, do it for, I'm going to do it for, for a couple of years and see if I can make it work. And, and I, you know, the reality was I couldn't make it work. Mm. From a family standpoint, it was just too demanding. I didn't feel good a lot of the time. Yeah. I would be home, you know, between like being at the gym in the morning and then going to the Red Sox and, you know, I'd go in at like one o'clock in the afternoon and you'd stay from one to 11. And, you know, and then you were cheating like the other baseball guys, you know, oh yeah, you know, you come in at one, you know, you're a banker, banker's hours. And it's like, you know, I used to look at them all the time. And I don't usually swear on these podcasts, but one of the guys would always be like, fuck you, Rick, I have another job. Yeah. You know, and I'd walk upstairs to the weight room because it was like, you know, he gave me shit every day about the fact that I, that I didn't come in until one. And, and you'd be like, and I've also been doing this for 20 more years than you. Yeah. So. And, yeah. And, and I went to work at six this morning. Trust me. And I'm going to work six to 11 today. But a lot of times, you know, I'd go in and I'd just go home and I would just lay on the couch for 20 minutes. I had like a little, uh, um, like a nap program on my phone, you know, that I could put on called deep sleep, you know, and I just put on deep sleep and it'd be like 25 minutes and I'd literally cock out on the couch for 25 minutes. And then I get up like, okay, gotta go, you know, jump in the car, 1230, drive into Fenway. But it, you know, you get to the point where you're like, that's no way to live. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember when you were over in Ireland that time doing um, functional strength coach five and you, you were saying like, I, I've really actually started to like feel the benefits of sleep. <laughs> you were, cause you were like, I've only ever slept like five hours most, most of my life. And you're like, now I'm actually, extending it to like six and a half seven is like i actually feel so much better and even now i've been better like i've been i sleep eight hours some nights now because great that's great that actually i'm delighted to hear that that's the rock mat thing i my my back is so much better right that my back doesn't wake me up i sometimes i used to think i couldn't sleep and now i realize it wasn't as much that i couldn't sleep as it was that my back pain didn't let me sleep so anything- right mike we're, we're coming up here on the hour so i just want to like, one or two like quick round things and, and we'll get you going. So just a quick question here. Functional strength coach seven. When, when can we expect that? Uh, you know, I have no idea. It's interesting. I just finished a youth training one with Pat Beef. So complete youth training that we just did. I don't know about functional strength coach seven. I, it's probably coming because I think I have enough stuff. I need to feel like I have enough yeah. new stuff yeah. to spend a day kind of in front of the the camera and not have people I never want people to feel like oh you already said I bought this already kind of feeling so might be maybe in the next year uh you training that's really becoming a big thing with you over the last number of years what is it is it just because maybe seeing Michaela Mark grow up through the system and uh, it really seems to be an area that you're very passionate about lately yeah and more I always thought I was passionate about it but it's very different when you doing it with your own kids yeah and you learn a lot more because it's easy to be the expert and that was one of you'll see the trailer i put the trailer up on twitter today but one of the things i said you know is i've got skin in the game you know i've done this now i've done it with one kid who we went really through the process you know michaela you know full scholarship to college national championship the first year you know and trained really from the time she was 11 hmm. you know it's, it's still training right now and in my case, you know, we made her not specialize. We made her play. You know, I had someone on Twitter the other day saying, you made a kid play a sport they didn't want to play. And I'm like, yeah, that's what you're supposed That's what parents do. It's funny, because people can go back 
over the strength coach podcast archives like because they go back to like like oh nine or oh eight oh nine and like i can remember listening and you saying like michaela wants to give us swimming but that we're gonna make her play multiple sports until she's older because we know that it's better so like you can actually have evidence going like the data going along but this lady was pissed at you know it's so wrong to make a kid you know if she doesn't love soccer she wouldn't have to play and i'm like you know, I always say to people, like, if she loved cocaine, I wouldn't let her do it. <laughs> you're, you're the parent. This is your job, yeah. right? Yeah. Your job is to direct. Like, I tell Mark that the same way. Like, Mark would, you know, probably in a lot of ways, if we said, hey, you can just play hockey, he'd do the same thing. And it's like, no, that you're not doing that. Hmm. There may come a time where you say, hey, this is it. But that time isn't 13. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's uh, – you know, it's the same thing. I think, you know, parenting is not easy and parenting isn't friending. And you know what I mean? It's not like, I think Michaela probably feels better about us now than she ever has in terms of as parents, but there were probably times when we were making her, you know, like I said, whether it was making her swim or making her play U14 soccer or yeah, yeah. the other multitude of things that we made her do where she was thinking, you know, my parents are paying the ass, you know, they, they don't, they don't understand. And, and it was kind of like, no, actually, I do understand. Yeah. Well, that wisdom comes as you mature and reflect back. Um, there's many things my parents done for me. I went at the time, I thought they were being hard asses, but you're like, they had your best interest at heart, really. Uh, so for my last two here, um, what, so you mentioned a lot of books, and you're, you, you're giving me more work to do now because I have to put in the show notes. So I've, I've put in all like, the, the books mentioned. But what, uh, what book or books are you currently reading right now? Uh, I'm reading one called Longevity Economy, which is very interesting, written by an MIT guy, sort of nice. about dealing with the baby boomers. Really interesting, uh, you know, just sort of mm-hmm. where retirement came from and then where are we going with that. There's another one that Craig Ballantyne told me, and I don't move, I'm going to tell you, I can't, I can't remember the title. That's all right. You just, you, just, you just have to put up with me now for a few seconds, guys. So if you're viewing this, look at this next slide. That's right. Mike Boyle, that willpower doesn't work is the name of the other one. And I, like I said, I just finished Happiness Equation. I'm rereading Legacy. You know me, I got ADD, so I always get more than one book. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. I've got, I've got a stack right here. I'm, I'm in skill acquisition mode right now, so I got a stack of them here. Yeah, so um, those are kind of been – actually, I just bought um, – Tim, oh, my God, I think it's Rabus is from uh, North Carolina State, told me Science of Breathing. So literally, sci- our Science of Breath by Yogi – Ramachurakara. Show uh, Put it up to the camera. Ah. Science of Breath. Very short. It's a little book. Mike Boyle. Uh, if, if, if you told somebody 10 years ago, Mike Boyle, read a yoga book on breeding. You oh, I tell you. you know, hey, that's <laughs> the, the beauty of evolution. I say to people is that, you know, you've got to evolve. You've got to change. You've got to, that ability, it's a, uh, I just finished um, Think Like a Freak or Co- Think Like, I think it's either Think Like a Freak or Co- Think Like a Freak from the Freakonomics guys. You, you love that. I, I must get into those. You love those Freakonomics series. Then. Yeah, well, this one is really good, but it's, it's, he says the three hardest words in the English language are I, I don't know. know. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I always look at people like, oh, you're always changing your mind. And I've seen, you've heard me say this a million times. I said, I, you know, I'm not apologizing for learning. learning. Yeah. You, you By the way, you don't uh, you, you don't change you, you don't change your mind very easy either. It takes a lot of convincing. Exactly, it, it may take years for me to change my mind. And again, I was saying Steve Bunker, the time ten thing. Yeah, I said that in my talk. You know, Steve's been doing this for six, seven years up in uh, 
North Andover. And I was always like, we're fine. Ball drops, chase sprints. It's a pain in the ass to bring the timer up. I was totally wrong. Yeah. So just, just to give context to the viewers and listeners, what Mike's talking about is that, like, so he, he, he's recently been talking with, like, uh, Coach Tony Haller and, and Chris Gorfis, and they were saying that they always do time tens, and they feel that they get more from the athletes because of the competitive edge. And a coach at Boyle Bunker used to time them, and Mike would be like, oh, we do chases and ball drops to get enough competitive edge. But he's kind of come around maybe more to the idea that time tens actually seems to lead to some better results because the athletes are, like, more competitive. Yeah, way better. I said that, you know, Tony – Tony has been really helpful. And again, I, I had kind of slide up there about Tony. You know, Tony's a 58-year-old high school chemistry teacher yeah. who also coaches track. Yeah. And he's also a really smart guy who's been, you know, I said he's my most influential guy over the last year without question. Tony, hands down. Uh, I have one more final question here, but just one quick thing I want to say too was just, just going off not changing your mind quickly. I, I'll always remember being in the uh, – in the in the car which you could drive to BU one day and it was you were actually Functional Strength Coach 3 had just been released and you were doing like a webinar for the first hundred people that signed up and we were talking about the squatting thing and the and the bilateral deficit and then you were there you you were just driving along and you said this so nonchalantly that I was just like you're crazy and you're like yeah like I mean people think I changed my mind like you know about stuff real quickly but I don't like the squat thing for instance like I actually sat down and calculated how many squats I'd watched during my coaching career and I was like what and you're like yeah so I, I roughly calculated out and it came into about a million squats I watched a million squats and then I made a decision so I was, just, <laughs> I was just like that's brilliant that people heard that but you know what I mean like when you sit but numbers are great like and I did it because I sat down one day and I said okay you know how many athletes a day how many sets yeah, yeah, that's. A, I could just see you doing that, going. Oh, well, and literally just multiplying it out. I was like at the calculator. I was like, it's like I've watched a million squats, easy, yeah. maybe more. You know, I, I that was just the number that came up based on that kind of okay. You know, thirty years of doing this. You know, four days a week. You know, so it was like yeah. you, know, you start figuring out the number of days, and then the numbers. You know, okay, three sets. Of, you know, if we said if everybody did, you know, somewhere between twenty and thirty, and you're right. I mean, it wasn't. And, you know, and that's what I love about this stuff is that people think like it was like a knee-jerk reaction. One day I woke up and decided I oh, was not doing this anymore. Yeah, yeah. I know. And it was so based on, on watching, on injury trends, on science, on what we knew about the low back, on what we knew about the spine. Like all this stuff went into it. And that's the part that people don't – they don't take the time. You know, you go back to the Covey thing, right? Seek first to understand, yeah. then to be understood. And you look at people with me, I think about that all the time. I'm probably the most misunderstood guy in the field in every area. You know, people meet me and I'm smaller than they expect me to be. People see us train and we train differently than they think we train. And hey, do, do you want to do you want a good laugh? I've told you this before, but you might have forgotten. Do, do you know your first, your, well, do you know, of course, your first book, Functional Training for Sports. But like when I first, first got into the profession, I thought Mike Boyle was the black guy in the cover. Oh, yeah. No, that's happened a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I used to joke with Mark Verstegen about that all the time. I said, you know, that's Mark Verstegen, really good looking guy. I said, I am not a really athletic looking black man. You know, yeah. and it's like, but that, that's. But you're like, that, that's Bunky's story too. Steve Bunker, the, the coach we just mentioned for the viewers and listeners, he said his first time meeting you, he walked in and he sees this painter in the facility. He goes, I saw this guy, uh, he was a painter, and he was painting. And I walked up to the painter and I said, I'm looking for Mike Boyle. And the painter came down the ladder shook off his uh, like shirt where he was doing put it outside and said hi i'm mike boyle <laughs> <laughs> so that was really good mike final question and if you listen to my podcast you, you you've heard this but i've always wanted to ask you this um so we're going to dinner five people dead or alive who are you going to bring to this dinner 
You know, that's a really interesting question. I, I would have to say, like we talk about Dead or Alive, I would have, I never met Charlie Francis. So mm. I would absolutely bring Charlie Francis. I'd have to bring Chris Poirier alive because he's like one of my best friends and my drinking buddy. So I'd be sure to have somebody because I'm not, not sure what a guy like Charlie's habits were going to be. Um, I'd have to bring Cindy because Cindy gets to go everywhere. So I've already got three right there. And I haven't really got anybody famous yet except Charlie. So um, I think we'll keep politicians out of it. So I'd have, I'd have, I thought you were going to bring Teddy Roosevelt. I think it would be very interesting. You know, and I love all these Einstein and Mark Twain. When I think of the quotable people that I love, like I think I'd love to sit with Mark Twain and, you know, have like spitting out these, you know. Don't let school get in the way of your education. Exactly. You know, and. Einstein saying, you know, common sense isn't very common, you know, be able to sit down with these guys and say, okay, you know, if I had Mark Twain and Charlie Francis and Einstein together, what would they tell me? Yeah. <laughs> and you'd probably get some great philosophy out of that thing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Mike, thanks so much for making time today. And there's so much stuff that we didn't get to that, that I think, I think a lot of people probably would have thought there would be more training talk, but I kind of wanted to get, you know, into some more deeper topics. So we definitely want to get you to come back on. I mean, there's stuff like energy systems, obviously training philosophy, program design, like maybe more of the science of training. But I really um, wanted to talk about it again more. Of the, the yeah. yeah. So this to me is just a recorded phone call. So. <laughs> All right, great. Well, then I'll, I'll uh, we'll try and set up another one soon enough. So, strengthcoach.com link in there, will you? So I can. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and so it's only that. So uh, just for the maybe just quickly there, do you want to just say strengthcoach.com and the functional um, certified functional strength coach? We need to talk about that too. How that whole came about. So we'll get you on again, and we'll talk about that, and I'll put all that in the show notes. All right, perfect. Hey, I gotta get going. I gotta be in the yep. gym. All right, see you, Mike. All right, take care. Bye, bye.